All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. Uh, I'm glad that you are joining us for worship this Sunday morning. If you haven't already, I encourage you to just take a minute to open up your Bibles to Romans 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one underneath your seats. If you don't own a Bible, please take one on your way out. They're on our table in the back. That's our gift to you this morning. Um, if you've been with us this spring, you know that we've been working through the second half of Romans. Uh, we began with chapter 9. This is because we actually did 1 through 8 uh, about a year and a half prior, uh, and we've covered quite a bit. So some of this has been some meteor theology. Um, we, we've been looking at the doctrines of justification, uh, election, God's sovereignty, and then once we hit chapter 12, it's been quite practical for us. So we're looking at how to live life as a faithful follower of Christ, uh, what the process of being made holier through sanctification looks like, how to interact with the authorities and people who have authority over us, and then how to interact uh, with and love one another as Christians within the church. And what Paul has been doing since the beginning of chapter 14 He's been zeroing in on a very specific challenge that the Christians in the Roman church were dealing with, and this is how to deal with a divisive issue uh, that, that is not essential to the gospel. So Paul dives really deeply into what is a, a central dividing issue for the people in Rome, uh, which was, should we eat meat or not? It sounds a little bit silly to us, but uh, and, and we really can't fully relate to this today, no matter how many examples I give. They, they've actually just all fallen short, because for the Romans, it's an issue that is at the same time like incredibly moral for some, but that which is also objectively, theologically neutral at the same time. So it's complicated. The, the eating of meat or the abstaining of meat uh, had no spiritual significance as it related to someone's salvation uh, in Christ. Yet, at the same time, it was really complicated because it included the consciences of the believers that were involved. So you have Paul saying, it's totally fine to eat meat, uh, but if it causes your brother to stumble, then never eat meat ever again. So it, it, it's a challenging situation. And, and we've already covered this extensively in two sermons, so I'm not going to go over all of that again for you. But here's where I think the last two sermons um, or chapter 14 can leave us. It's possible to be focused too much on trying to find the meat, no meat equivalent issue for us today here at Mercy House. Not that thinking about it and assessing ourselves is wrong, but what we ultimately need is chapter 15, which is where we're going to be this morning. And here's why. In chapter 15, Paul takes a step back. And he takes, a, he takes a step away from the microphone that's, that's been trained in on this very specific issue. And what he does is he reminds the Romans that there's a much more broad application of these principles. And, and there's a much larger picture which we need to be able to keep in mind as we continue doing church together and as we follow God. But before we jump into the text, let's pray one more time. Holy Father, you are our mighty God. You are not weak or dainty or fragile. You make the mountains tremble. You, you make oceans evaporate like puddles in the summer sun. And Scripture says in Proverbs 22 that you are a king who is like a growling lion and that whoever provokes this lion to anger forfeits his life. So help us this morning to have a reverence for your holiness, God. Help us to see your worthiness. Help us to appreciate your humility and your grace toward us. 
God, let it not be lost on us that the king of the universe has stooped down to serve the needs of weak, trembling, sinful, fragile human beings. I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes this morning, that you would unblock our ears, that you would soften our hearts to be able to receive your word today, God. May your word transform our hearts to live as your sons and your daughters. God, help our church. Help our church family be a reflection of the eternal and the inevitable reality that is in you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For the first time, Paul explicitly names the strong in the church, and he identifies himself as one of the strong by opening the section with we who are strong. And what he says is, is that we who are strong... Meaning, in context of what's been talked about in chapter 14, we who are mature in our understanding of liberty and freedom in Christ, we who are free from the constraints of a weaker, less sanctified conscience, we who are more spiritually mature and have a firm grasp on the gospel and the implications of our faith in Christ and God's grace in our lives, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. In other words, we, the the strong and the mature, owe it to or are in debt to our weaker brothers and sisters around us to bear with or to help or to support the failings of the weak. Literally, in the Greek, it's, it's the weaknesses of the weak is what we are called to bear with. So almost immediately... If chapter 14 kind of led us down this rabbit hole where our focus is too narrow and we're searching for and wondering what is the complex adiaphora or non-essential yet divisive issues of the day, Paul gives us a very broad principle that blankets all of Romans 14, which is that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failures and the weaknesses of the weak. Whether those weaknesses are matters of conscience, which Paul dove deeply into previously, or what is more probable and more prevalent in the church then and now is when those weaknesses are seen in the failures of Christians to act and live the way that Christ has called them to live. And in these cases, the strong are obliged to bear with the weak. And Paul's exhortation for those in the church to to help and to support, that's what that word bears with means, it's somewhat intuitive. I, I think on the surface, it doesn't sound much different than being kind and having good manners, the things I don't think many of us have too hard of a time with. So if someone's like struggling physically to carry something and we see that, I, I think we're going to be pretty quick to have the mind to literally help bear that burden for them and, and lighten their load a little bit. If someone were to be walking in front of you and they trip and they fall and they spill all of their lunch and all of their books or whatever they're carrying onto the ground, I think we would be quick to bear with them, to help them to their feet and, and to help pick up their mess. So bearing with people who make mistakes or who, who show weakness is relatively intuitive and easy for most of us. As long as those failures don't affect us personally, 
And as long as we have little expectations for that person who shows weakness. Paul's exhortation is harder for us to receive and to live out when the failures of others do affect us personally, and when we do have expectations for our brothers and our sisters. Bearing with our brothers and sisters is more challenging when our brothers and sisters don't show up when we need them to show up, when we ask them to do something and they don't do it, when we rely on them but then they fall through, when they don't encourage us when we need encouragement the most, that maybe when they don't speak, or when, I'm sorry, when they do speak, when all we need is someone to actually just listen to us, when they insist on their own way, when they're being careless, when they're being selfish, when they're not being thoughtful, when they're being forgetful, like this is when it can be hard to bear with our brothers and our sisters. It's hard to not become frustrated with them, to lose our patience with them, to even pridefully roll our eyes and wonder, when are they just going to grow up and get it together? As the weaknesses are revealed in the ones that are closest to us, it can become, at times, almost impossible to bear with them. When they continually let us down, when they continually struggle in their sinfulness or then even lose their willingness to fight their sin altogether, when they say hurtful things, when they do hurtful things, when, when you realize maybe they're not quite the friend that you thought they were, when they ignore you, when they abandon you, when they run away from God and the faith and they hide from the community, like at the hardest moments, we might feel every impulse in our hearts wanting to just close ourselves off, to harden up, from, uh, harden up toward them in order to protect ourselves from being more hurt, or we're tempted to despise them in our hearts, to judge them in their weaknesses, and to grow bitter and resentful toward them. We don't want to bear with them. But that is the depth at which Romans 15 verse 1 speaks into. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Bailing with the Bearing with the failings of the weak is exceptionally hard when those failings are personal and when we expect the weak to be stronger than they actually are. It doesn't take very much to look in the mirror and realize that we too have had moments of spiritual weakness when we ourselves have failed our brothers and sisters. We have failed to be present we have failed to be encouraging. We have failed to listen, to be selfless, to speak kindly. We have said hurtful things. We have done hurtful things. We have in seasons neglected God in our own faith, neglected the calling that God has for us to live righteously, to imitate Christ. And we have failed our brothers and sisters who have been expecting us, have been needing us to run the race with endurance. I don't believe Paul's exhortation for the strong to bear with the weak is made as if there are two static, unchanging groups of people in the church. On any, on any given day, anyone can be strong in Christ or they can be weak. So what this means is that there will be days, perhaps many days, where I, as your pastor, will be weak and where you will be called to be strong 
And because of, your, uh, because of God's grace in your weakness, you will be obligated, you will be compelled to be like Christ and to bear with me in my weaknesses. This is true for your elders. This is true for your staff. This is true for all of your leaders. This is true for those who are mentors to you, those who disciple you. Like There will be a moment, if it hasn't happened to you already, when those who you look up to most in the faith will have their weaknesses exposed, and you will see them as sinners just like everyone else in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. Don't let those moments catch you off guard. When those you expect to be strong, when they are weak, you must bear with them, not turn away in disgust and frustration, but to figure out how to love them and serve them in their weakness for their good. Why? Look at chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul's reason for why we are obligated to bear with one another and to build one another up and be focused on the good of one another is because Jesus did. This is not a Pauline philosophy that the strong shall serve the weak. This is a cosmic law that is more foundational than gravity. It is less avoidable than time being a thing that marches forward. Like Jesus has established this paradigm, which is how he lived his life. Jesus did not live for himself. He, he didn't do whatever he wanted to do. His focus was to do what God the Father wanted him to do, which was ultimately in service to all of those people that are around him. This was so ingrained as his mission and focus while he lived on earth, and, and, and he, he never deviated from it. It was such a part of him that Paul uses this quote from Psalm 69 to show us that Jesus' unity with the Father was so intertwined that insulting the Father was taken personally by Jesus. When he says the reproaches of those who reproached you, this is Jesus speaking to the Father, fell on me. Jesus wasn't just selfless and void of self-pleasure or self-interest. He was wholly devoted to the Father and to others. One of the most beautiful displays of this is when the disciples see this hyper-selfless focus as he's serving the people around him in John chapter 4. They're concerned because Jesus hasn't eaten, and his response is almost comical, but also shows how selfless he actually is. This is in chapter 4, verse 31 through 34. This should be on your screens. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I can't help but chuckle whenever I read that. But what it shows is that Jesus was not messing around. His relationship with the Father was not limited to having a morning devotional. It wasn't just thinking about God on Sundays. He was so zealous about being on the same page as the Father and doing the work of selflessly serving his brothers and sisters for their good all of the time that it led him to forget about his own primary needs. Why? Because this work filled him up. 
It sustained him. It, it brought him closer fellowship with his father, which ultimately satisfied his soul better than any delicious meal could. We should bear with the weaknesses and failures of our brothers and sisters and, and live to support the good of one another, to build one another up, because Jesus shows us the incredible blessing that comes when we make that our mission and our focus. It is better than anything we could spend our time doing for ourselves. That's the point of this. Better than all the fame that we could amass for ourselves, better than all the money that we could accumulate for ourselves, better than all of the peaceful rest and me time that we can have. It is literally better than food hitting our starving bellies. Having a hunger to seek the will of God and the good of others is the ultimate mature Christian appetite. And in this regard, Jesus' hunger was insatiable. He could not get enough. So don't miss the connection between Paul's exhortation to bear with one another and Christ's bearing with us. The reason why we need to hear this exhortation from Paul is because it is hard to do. So even though there is a level of satisfaction that we see Jesus experiencing that trumps food, he still got hungry. <laughs> So let's not be naive here. There is a beautiful glory that we get to have as we selflessly seek the good of others and to build them up, but it does come at a cost. It came at a cost for Jesus. I'm sure he had many hungry days. This was not the first time that he was hungry as he was doing ministry. Many sleepless nights, and ultimately being tortured on the cross was the cost to serve and love others, but he paid that ultimate cost get gladly for our good because this is the way. <laughs> the strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. When Paul says this, he doesn't mean to simply put up with one another. I've alluded to this earlier, but look again at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. When our brothers and sisters are showing their weakness, we're not called to just put up with them, to be patient with them, to watch as they flounder and figure it out in their own time. Paul is telling the Romans to be proactive here, to actually strengthen them in their weaknesses. He's reminding them that it's their duty, that it is their obligation to figure out ways to bolster them up in their weaknesses, to build them up. Healthy Christian community doesn't just look like a bunch of people grinding their teeth and white-knuckling it as, as they just try to get used to the weaknesses and the spiritual immaturities of one another. We support each other. We carry each other's burdens. We love each other with the love which God has loved us to try to build one another up in our weaknesses. How do we do this practically? I'm going to give you three ways that you can bear with, support, and love your brothers and sisters. You can befriend them. You can pray for them. And you can edify them. So unless you have photographic memory, I would encourage you to write these down for the sake of your brothers and sisters around you. Three ways you can bear with and support and love one another in their weaknesses. To befriend them, to pray for them, to edify them. First, befriend them. Befriend them. This might be especially hard when the weak brothers or sisters around us are those who we're expecting, maybe trusting to be strong. When people fail us personally, we are tempted to be bitter 
or resentful, or, or maybe we grow cold and distant. In either case, we are pushing the weak away. This is not what Christ does. This is not what we are called to as we follow him. We're called to lean in instead of away and to befriend the weaker Christian. Friends hang out. Friends watch movies and go for walks and eat food together. Friends talk. Friends tease sometimes. Friends give gifts. Friends cook meals for each other. Friends have fun together. Friends remember what they have in common. And I'm not just talking about hobbies or superfluous preferences. Jonathan K. Dodson writes in his book, The Unwavering Pastor, as he's reflecting on his friendships, he says this, good friends share good things in common, but great friends hold the greatest things in common. When two people delight in the same truth, it has a way of gluing them together. So when the weaknesses of your brothers and your sisters come to surface, remember that Christ unites you to them, and let that be the glue. Befriend the weaker Christians in your life. We can also pray for them. This is not an empty endeavor. It's the most powerful thing that we can do for our weaker brothers and sisters. Just look at how the Bible views prayer and how it prescribes it. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Talk about a way to minister to the weak, to bolster them up. Prayer is a way that God has ordained his weak and discouraged people to receive healing and forgiveness. Prayer is so critical because the failures and the weaknesses and the discouragements in our brothers and sisters can't be resolved in any other way other than by supernatural intervention by God. We're not just hoping that our weaker brothers and sisters experience some behavior modification. Like, we we don't want them to have fake strength. We want wholehearted transformation in their lives. We want our brothers and sisters to experience true freedom in Christ, true repentance from sin, true sanctification and holiness. And those things do not happen without the help of God. If we want to build up and support our weaker brothers and sisters, we not only should pray for them, we must pray for them. There is no other means by which they are genuinely, spiritually strengthened outside of God himself, mercifully and graciously intervening in their lives through the Holy Spirit in them. So befriend the weaker Christian, pray for the weaker Christian, and edify the weaker Christian. What does it mean to edify them? It means to encourage them in their faith. Our goal should not be to just make them feel bad in their weaknesses or to make them feel guilty, but we should be giving them gospel truths that establish them and mature them. So share Scripture with them. 
Help them remember who they are in Christ, not just who they are in their failures. Send them songs. Write them a letter. Send them a book or send them a link to a sermon or an article that you found helpful and edifying for yourself. This is why Paul's exhortation is to the strong Christian, because the strong Christian is in a place in their walk with God where they're consuming truth, they are running their race, where they actually can edify the weaker Christian. Weaker Christians will struggle with this point in particular. They might be able to befriend a weaker Christian. They might be able to pray. But how are they able to edify anyone if they themselves are not being edified? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And then when you jump down to verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Bless you. The, those of us who are strong must consider how to use our words to carefully and thoughtfully edify and build up our weaker brothers and sister. Words are powerful. That's the point of this. But what's more powerful than the words of the strong to the weak are the words of God to his people. This, this is what Paul reminds us as he takes a little detour in verse 4. So look at verse 4 in chapter 15 of Romans. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I encourage you to highlight this verse. God's universal paradigm that the strong have an obligation to bear with and to serve and to build up the weak is not only on display in the example of Jesus in his ministry, which we saw in John 4, but is actually actively happening to us as we read the Bible. So let me show you what I mean. Paul takes a minute to explain in verse 4 the value of Psalm 69, that citation he just made in that previous verse. He's saying that the words that are written by the psalmist are written for us. It was written for our instruction and our endurance and our encouragement. Paul is not just talking about Psalm 69 verse 9. He says, whatever was written in former days. So this is alluding to the whole canon of Scripture. It was all written for our endurance and for our encouragement. Now, who wrote it? Look at verse 5, just at the beginning of that verse. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. There, these are not coincidental word choices, Ladies and gentlemen, this is a huge moment of revelation where God, who is the God of endurance and encouragement, has written all scripture with a purpose of giving us, the reader, endurance and encouragement. The Bible is God's loving and direct expression to you and to me of, of the strong building up the weak. The Bible is God speaking directly into our exhaustion and our weariness and our inability to endure. It's God speaking directly into our demoralized, disheartened, and depressed spirits. 
And it's giving us, through His words, the ability to endure and to be encouraged and to have hope. Is this how we read God's word? Is this how we receive what is in our hands? Never mind this being a passage that is used to help us understand the divine inspiration of Scripture, which is very important. But I think the even more incredible revelation is the intimately personal nature of what God is saying to each of us with the Bible that we have in our hands. This is not old, disjointed words on a page. This is not a distant or or philosophical rant. The Bible is a letter from God to you to help you run the race with endurance when you can hardly stand and to lift your heart out of the pits of gloom and despair. Psalm 19, the psalmist here understands this. Starting in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts of the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed, and keeping them there is great reward. When you are weak and there is no one strong around you to befriend you, to pray for you, to edify you, God himself has moved heaven and earth to give you his word. He himself will strengthen you. He himself will restore you and encourage you so that you will be able to endure through anything to the end. He does this through his precious word, Mercy House. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We're going to move on. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul gives the Romans a snapshot of eternity. He reminds them what's at stake. And all this talk about loving each other and being careful about one another's consciences and serving one another and bearing with one another and building each other up, like there's something going on that is on a, like a gloriously eternal scale. And the snapshot that we get in these verses is of heaven, when we will be in harmony, perfect harmony with one another, in complete alignment with Christ. And when that happens, despite whatever our differences were, whatever our conflicting personality traits were, whatever sin was breeding, quarreling, and division in us, God will grant us the ability to have perfect unity with each other and in Christ. And the ultimate goal and the climax of all of this striving is that us 
together with one voice would be able to glorify God. The end game of Christian community is undivided, holy, united worship of God. That's the end game of all of this. That's what we're working toward. And even though this is a snapshot of heaven, it's also a reality that we can have here and now. What Paul is exhorting the Romans to do is just that. He's not telling them to just hole up somewhere with their Bible and just read the Bible and, and, die, and wait to die and Jesus is going to come back and do this. No, that's not what he's saying. He's taking his time to write all of this letter to the Romans because heaven isn't something that we are just waiting for. It's something that we are called to right now. And his prayer and his blessing over them is that God would allow them to experience this beautiful unity in Christ. Why? Not just to have less conflict or to have an overall quieter and more relaxed church experience. He wants the Romans to experience unity in Christ so that they can fully worship God. Divided communities cannot worship God to their fullest extent. This is why we must strive to love one another and to bear with one another's weaknesses and to strive to be united together in Christ. Like our ability to fully worship together and God's glory is what is at stake if we do not. There are places in the world where you can buy food and these are restaurants that are set up with dozens of individual small stalls and you can go and you can sit down in one of these stalls. You don't have to talk to anybody. And you can push a button and, and you can order. And a little window slides open and your food slides out into the table in front of you. And you can eat it all by yourself in this private little cubicle. And when you're done, you swipe your credit card, you get up, and you leave. And while maybe some of us introverts might think this is awesome and this is how every meal should be eaten. This is not the way that we worship God in church. A lot of people have this type of mentality, I think, when it comes to worshiping God on a Sunday. Maybe we slide in and we sit down and we look straight ahead and we worship God in our little cubicle, our own private mental zone Maybe we swipe the tithe and then we get out. This is not what God has in mind for his church. Worship is always exemplified in the Bible in communities of people. God's people gathering all together. Verse 5, living in harmony with one another. That implies interaction with one another. Harmony with one another in Christ with one voice glorifying God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be a church that catches this vision for what it means to be a community of faith, a community of brothers and sisters who are seeking the good of one another. We are in each other's lives. We are united in Christ. And then, as a fruit, and the purpose of all of that that we would be able to worship God together. We all have a part to play to achieve that end goal. So we who are strong hear God's words. You have an obligation and a duty to bear with the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters. 
Who has God put on your radar to build up and encourage this week, today? Who will you befriend? Who will you pray for? Who will you edify? I exhort you to be diligent and faithful in this. We who are weak, hear God's words. That's it. Hear God's word. Like our ultimate source of encouragement and endurance as Christians is not from friends or family or mentors or any other medium. God can use any of those, but why not go to the source himself? Read and hear God's word. If you're not a Christian, you are beyond weak. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, you are dead. But there's good news And hear God's words this morning, words that not only strengthen the weak, but bring dead people back to life. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Receive that this morning. At Mercy House, we don't worship in imaginary private cubicles on Sunday mornings, and we don't take communion in imaginary private cubicles either. Communion is a meal that we all share together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion allows us to remember together the length at which Christ went to build up and establish us who weren't just weak, but who were dead in our sin. When we take communion, we remember the cost And we also remember the obligation and duty that we now have to bear with the weaknesses of one another because Christ bore our weaknesses, every single ounce of it, on the cross. Let's pray. Father, there is no one stronger than you. The heavens declare your glory. The skies above proclaim your handiwork. We are in awe of your power and of your holiness. We confess that we are weak and that we need you. We confess that we don't always fulfill our obligation to bear with the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters. Thank you for bearing with our weaknesses. And thank you for bearing our sin and our shame on yourself. And thank you for bearing with us when we forget who we are and we forget what you've called us to do. So, Father, give us strength to fight the good fight. Give us endurance and encouragement through your word so that we may have a hope that abounds. Restore us, God. Restore in us the joy of our salvation. We pray that you would uphold us with your willing spirit. And may we all, united in Christ, in perfect harmony, sing now with one voice in worship of you and your glory. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.